Welcome to the Sports Business Strategy Podcast. I'm Will Item. I'm Armand Alawalia. And I'm Brittany Ramos. It is episode 11. The Masters has just completed. And that smooth, velvety-toned voice you just heard was that of Brittany Ramos with a brand new mic. Brittany, talk to that mic. Welcome to the show, everyone. Happy to have you. And you said you have a radio <laughs> voice. Come on. That's perfect. So nice. From now on, you're going to do the intro. Uh, hit us with a welcome to the Sports Business Strategy Podcast. Welcome to the Sports Business Strategy Podcast. I'm Brittany Ramos. Oh, beautiful. There we oh, go. I love it. I feel like a new person, honestly. I feel official right now. It no longer sounds like you are in a uh, glass case of emotion or podcasting, <laughs> yes. what have you. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you. <laughs> uh, other than that, I can't think of any other big news that has happened in sports recently other than this uh, new mic. What's been going on with you guys? Well, I think first off, the Masters was a big sports moment. You know, we had our first um, Japanese pro win a major tournament. I thought mm -hmm. first it was male a Japanese, two male. female Sorry. Japanese winners. Can't yes. forget them. They they were setting the, the trip blazers. Let's not let's not forget. No, totally appreciate that. And I thought it was a great tournament. And I think what was really exciting and keeps being exciting is seeing fans back in the stands. I cannot be more excited to see people sitting there with their beer in hand and looking excited and, and enjoying the game, hearing real crowd noises. Um, mm -hmm. I don't miss fake crowd noises. I think we can all be hopefully done with that soon. So I think it was just a really awesome moment to welcome back a major tournament a major sports event with people. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I was pretty excited for that. Are you talking about the Masters or are you talking about WWE's WrestleMania? That was also this weekend where fans were in the stands, 25,000 each night. I'm sure that's what you were trying to pivot to. You guys want to go down uh, match by match of what happened? Absolutely. Are you, a big, are you a big WWE fan, Will? Oh, have we never talked about this? No, we haven't. I assumed, oh. but I just, you know... You're from Nebraska. Uh, I, yeah. Some people I know from Nebraska, big WWE fans. Definitely watched it as a kid. I am NWO forever, not for life. For all you wrestling listeners out there, I am part of the Wolfpack. Uh, and then after like a 10 or 15 year hiatus, the brother-in-law, my brother and I got back into it. And we've got nephews that are growing up who are soon to start getting into it. So yes, it seems that wrestling is back in my life. So I subscribed to Peacock just so I could watch the WrestleMania. It was great to see fans, to your point, Brittany. I will say that the uh, the Masters, though, if we're if we're going back to oh, as in person, okay. you know, I mean, I, come on, I just you know, Will's wrestling corner. We'll do a different episode. Go back to the Masters. I I think the the ratings were down for CBS, which, which was kind of interesting. But again, it was great to see fans in the stands. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is that at the Masters, you can't bring your phone inside, right? That the patrons. And again, they're called patrons. They're not guests. There's a certain level of lingo. What's interesting is I found out that CBS doesn't have an actual like written contract, that it's a handshake year-to-year -year deal between CBS and the Masters. And there's apparently only four minutes of commercial time per 60 minutes, which is substantially lower than anything else. Also, the Masters has very few sponsors. It's like IBM, 
Mercedes, and I think that's Coca Cola. I think yeah, given the given the the Georgia um, tie, probably makes a lot of sense. So again, the Masters from a sponsorship perspective is very very unique, and I love how they've taken almost that Olympic type modeling of very few deeper solid solid relationships. Right? I think you know think about golf. You think about being on a course you know, building those relationships, like they're very much handshake deals, which is kind of interesting, at least from my perspective. I've got some numbers for you. This comes from Sportico. Uh, there are five sponsors. Mm. Uh, we've got AT&T. Yes, that's uh, the other one. AT&T, IBM, Mercedes-Benz, UPS, and Rolex uh, uh, as the two international partners. Uh, and to your point on viewership numbers, uh, the November Masters only had 5.6 million in the final round compared to the 15.4 the year before. Uh, this Masters did perform better than the November mm. one, Aww. but if I am correct, it was only like in that 9 million range this year. So still with COVID, when the hopes are everyone's just sitting around their house watching sports, it still feels like uh, people's attention to what's on TV is not everyone's main focus right now. No Tiger. The last round wasn't super right. close. I mean, the the San Diego State kids Xander Shoffley um, <laughs> didn't really didn't really keep it that close there. He you know triple bogey on on the back stretch will make things less interesting. If so. it's not Canada or hockey, it's San Diego State. Good good job, Armand. <laughs> good job. I love the plug there. I love it. <laughs> But also what I always find so interesting about golf from a sponsorship perspective is just how they patch sponsors all over their t-shirts. I just think it's just, it's very interesting um, how they're kind of walking billboards for their partners. And, you know, we talk about, you know, for us on the football side or, or basketball side, we were I mean, football, we're not even allowed to yet, but on basketball, you obviously have a Jersey patch, um, and hockey now with the helmets and so forth. But golf has always been, you know, the players being there walking billboards. And I don't actually know, and maybe you will, since you are clearly our numbers person, I don't know how, you know, I'd love to see like from a value perspective, like, you know, what that drives for the brands. And obviously you have your normal kind of association factor, but just seeing how that pickup is, because I know with uh, Matsuyama, I was like looking at his, the golf brand he's sponsored by, cause I'd never heard of it before. And I Googled. Srixen. Yeah. And maybe yeah, Srixen's a great, it, maybe I'm it's not a great avid, affordable brand. Maybe I'm just not an avid golfer, but for your casual fan, I was a sucker and Googled that and was like, Oh, okay. Okay. Just trying to figure out what it was. What's, what's interesting is that Justin Rose, the English golfer who has been very competitive and yeah. was until, until the final round, he, his hat was just a Morgan Stanley hat. It wasn't a Titleist hat. It wasn't a Nike hat. It just said Morgan Stanley on it. And right, and obviously in golf, a lot of the sponsors are very financial, building trust, you know, equitable in the, in, in the game. So yeah, I think what's interesting is even watching 10 years ago, none of those players were wearing anything other than mm-hmm. Titleist, Nike, or Srixen, or Under Armour, right? Uh, in the case of J- um, in, in, the, in the case of Jordan Spieth, mm-hmm. but essentially now they've started transitioning to where it's you've got RBC on the on the sleeve for Corey Connors, you've got 
uh, Titleist or MasterCard on the on the back of the back of the shirt or the the collar. I mean, they're getting very very innovative, and it's almost looking like an international hockey jersey with you know yeah. fifty different sponsors on the on the jersey. It was either uh, Bryson DeChambeau or uh, Kepka Brooks, who is actually well known for. I think it's. Uh, uh, Bryson, who is notorious for taking care of his partners of uh, whenever he's doing an interview, he's always making sure he's got like his drink partner in view, you know, like he's on the voice and he's got like that Coca-Cola uh, cup and everything like that. So it's, it's, you can certainly notice it with the golfers that they understand that, Hey, I'm good at golf and I'll make money off golf, but where the real money is, is if I've got sponsorship um, supporting me as well too. And that was the whole thing with Hideki Matsuyama bringing this full circle is, you know, however many million dollars he got from the Masters, that's fine. But they had projected that that was really a $600 million sponsorship. Because if you think about the longevity of a golfer's career, mm -hmm. and if he makes about $20 million in sponsorship money uh, with the fervent fan base of golfers in Japan over the next 30 years, that's, that one win mm -hmm. gets him not only the $600 million, but possibly the opportunity to light the torch at this yes. upcoming Olympics as I well. Agree. Too. So definitely great timing for uh, Matsuyama. Fun, so. fun little fact. Japan has is the second most golf courses in the world behind the United States. I think we probably should do another shout out. I think a lot of those numbers, uh, that info I got, from Sportico. Yes. So <laughs> I've been Sportico, Williams. <laughs> uh, the unofficial uh the unofficial news outlet of the Sports Business Strategy podcast. So thank you very much for your work, Kurt uh Badenhausen. Great job. <laughs> that said, Hideki Matsuyama, uh an international star over across the Pacific Ocean, across the Atlantic Ocean, we have McLaren Racing, which is where this week's guest comes from. Who do we got on the pod today? We got James Bunbury from McLaren Racing. So uh, as I'm sure you guys are well aware, I've pushed Formula One Drive to Survive. So we're very fortunate to have James Bunbury, who I, I met through a, a virtually through a conference and is working on the activation side, essentially overseeing their head principal partner there. So uh, great interview. I definitely learned a lot. Uh, Brittany, I, I know you said you had some some good insights out of the out of the conversation as well. Yeah, I thought it was great. I think, you know, for me, again, and as you mentioned, it was just a really big education piece. Um, as F1 just continues to grow a larger presence, obviously, I mean, it's huge internationally, but just even getting more and more popular here in the States, you know, we kind of reference the, the Netflix documentary that everyone is raving about. Um, so it was really interesting to get a, a real inside look onto their into their business and into their strategy as they continue to grow, especially McLaren having kind of a multi-property um, with their IndyCar here in the U.S. and so forth. So it was really interesting. I learned a lot and I thought James was a, a great guest for us to have. Fantastic. Well, I sat this one out, so I will leave you two to it. This is James Bunbury of McLaren Racing. All right, and we have a special guest from across the pond. We are joined today by James Bunbury, who is the head of principal partner at McLaren Racing. James, how are we doing? Yeah, very, really, really good. Lovely to be here. Can I just quickly say thank you very much, firstly, for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to so join such an illustrious group of guests already today. Well, spoken like a true Brit and being very polite. Um, I love the intro there. So we uh, we start off all of our interviews, just like we do every other one, with uh, a quick background of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, cool. Well, I've 
has had a bit of a roundabout route into the sports industry. It's always been a, a massive passion of mine, but when I first left university, to be quite frank, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like, you know, I loved watching sport. Um, didn't really know a huge amount about, I suppose, the sport industry and the business of sport. Um, and didn't really see it as a career opportunity for me. Um, so I tried, a few, tried my hand at a few other bits and pieces. I'd been quite successful in running music events, so I so tried my hand at that back here in London. Moved on to telesales, um, which is actually probably where I really had my first opportunity to understand how strategic thinking is, I suppose, integral to, to success. Um, a lot of people in my team, it was all about volume, you know, make more calls, make more sales. That's the way that it was worked. And for me, I actually wanted to take a step back and understand, you know, what are we selling here? Who's going to benefit from it? Uh, and actually do my research and go out and, and make a much more sort of targeted approach um, and have much more meaningful and beneficial conversations with people. Yes, the volume wasn't there, but my success rate could be much, much higher. Um, and it actually led me to be one of the most successful salespeople in the team. Um, anyway, from there, I thought, you know what, what am I truly now? Well, yes, it's sport. It's always been sport since I was, you know, since I can even remember. So I wanted to try and find my hand into the sports industry and was very lucky to, uh, to get a role at IMG. Um, so I worked within the mass participation division here at IMG UK, hospitality sales, uh, sponsorship sales, and also account management. And then from there, I moved to a, a company called CSM Sports and Entertainment, who are, who are big here in the UK and also big across the world. And that was really where I sort of cut my teeth, understanding the importance of the relationship between brand and white right working on that agency side, acting as that kind of linchpin. And I was very lucky to be given the freedom of both the business and, and my client, um, who were Lucid Sports, who were a big British sports drink beverage, to explore how data insights and strategy can really inform better decision making from a marketing perspective. And how do we use that information to you know, enhance the way that we distribute our content or produce content that is more relevant to our audience? Or you know, actually, how do we decide which partnerships we want to go into? Um, and that's something that stuck with me from then on. Um, and really, it's something that I've always wanted to take with me forward into, into a future sport. I knew I wanted to go white out there, and I knew I wanted to move to Formula One. So in my current role, head of the principal partner, obviously my, my main responsibilities are making sure that um, our principal partner are able to leverage the right to maximum effect. Well, for me, that's about you know not just being traditional white spot potentially and saying, yes, no, that's what we can do, that's what we can't do without right working collaboratively with them to really understand our audience, understand the way that our channels work and how they can communicate with the individuals and our fans, and make sure that they're not just best leveraging our rights in terms of maximizing the use of them and getting through them from many perspectives possible year, but actually making sure that every single time that they use a right, it delivers against their core brand and partnership. Yeah, so... I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit because I know it's been a craze and everyone's been watching the documentaries and being everyone now I feel like has become a very big F1 fan. I have to watch it. So I apologize in advance. I have not. But, you know, I'm just so interested in the space and would love to just really understand. And, and this is kind of from an, an educational perspective of understanding your guys' structure a little bit more, but just how your partnerships team is structured. Also, if you can tap into a little bit, as you look to position the value of the McLaren racing team, what is that? And how do you go to market with that type of value proposition? So McLaren is, is a historic racing brand, many decades now. 
I suppose the way that we run our team is, is varied. Probably most fundamentally from McLaren back in 2016, 2017, when our current CEO came in, a guy called Zach has a history from a bit of an agency background um, and set up a, an agency from Just Marketing, was currently to do with, with motorsports and actually um, was was bought by CSM, one of the agencies that I used to work for. So there's a little bit of crossover there. What's interesting about Zach is, you know, he's a CEO of a Formula One team that comes into it with a commercial mindset. Both the guys and girls who, who work within I suppose the senior leadership of Formula One organization are, are very operationally based. They're very much focused on how the team works and how the team runs. So having Zach come in from a commercial perspective kind of changes the way that the racing team as a, as a mindset works. Um, we have a marketing function within our racing team division. It's, it's made up of about 80 odd people. Um, it's actually led by a, a gentleman called Mark Waller, who you might be familiar with. Um, we used to do a lot of work with the NFL, um, and you know, Mark is an incredibly experienced guy, incredibly intelligent guy, and you know, a real pleasure to work with. Um, and you know, he sort of reshaped the organisation to, from a marketing perspective anyway, try and change the way that we approach challenges, um, and actually develop a little bit of a, you might want to call it sort of agency mentality within the rights holder. You know, we want to make sure that our partners get the sense that everybody within our organization is there to support the delivery of their objectives versus their rights. So we have you know multiple functions within our within our market department, problems digital creative, etc. to really support with that. And you know, myself and the partnerships team, we act as those, those sort of liaisons, you know, client relationship managers, so to speak. And we rely heavily on our extended team to support on the delivery and successful execution of those rights, those brand campaigns for our partners. Um, most of us are based in the UK. Uh, you know, we are a British team. We are proud of that. Um, but we'd be foolish not to have a, a global footprint, particularly from a partnership development perspective. There's huge opportunity in a number of regions, you know, North America certainly being one of them, um, Australia um, and Asia Pacific, and Australia most notably because obviously we've got a new Australian driver on our lineup this year. But also America, because we have a collaboration um, with an IndyCar team, the Aaron McLaren Schmidt Pizza team, which makes us quite unique as well in the world of motorsport in the sense that we are one of the only teams, or in fact, we are the only team to have operations in two of the premier open wheel racing series in the world. And if for our existing partners and prospective partners, you're not necessarily just signing up to a Formula One team, you're also signing up to a team who has access to, to IndyCar. Or you can sign up to a team who's potentially got options to work through Formula E and other sports activities in both sport moving forward. So it's a very exciting time for McLaren Racing as a whole, and also an exciting time for our partners to be to be part of that journey. It's so interesting to me, and especially as you touch into being very cross property, is that when you're speaking to partners or you're going to market, looking at different categories or opportunities, you spoke a little bit earlier about utilizing data and insights for, for pitches and, and understanding the brand's objectives. Walk us through, if you can, your process of how do you guys usually focus in with some of these brands um, when you do have such a, a large, extensive portfolio of opportunities that you could deliver? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably more of a question for our PD team if I want to. I feel like I could actually be a bit remiss answering on their behalf. But 
you know, I, I appreciate that. Do you sometimes stretch yourself too thin? You know, do you lose the focus of um, of your single property? You know, if you if you do have all of these different options available. Um, look, for us, we're a bit of a heritage brand. Um, we're very fortunate in the sense that you know we have a number of, of historic relationships that are that are ongoing, and I suppose substantiate our our commercial program. You know, prove that use the better term, prove is in the pudding there, so to speak. But ultimately. You know, how we use data insight, particularly for my side of things, is making sure that we're supporting our existing partners in terms of delivering against our objectives. And, and the reason why we see that as so important is that, of course, new customers, new partners are, are, are vital revenue stream for us. But more importantly than that, our existing customers. You know, how do, we, how do we make sure that they're happy with the service that we're providing? And ultimately, how do we therefore provide them with an opportunity that they see they see growth in the properties that they provide them with. And Falcons you know, Partners is a great example of that. You know, they had a relationship with us from the marketing perspective. And we, we had a conversation, and now they're part of you know, a major partner with our own team. There are a number of partners who you know, collaborate across both teams. And you know, that provides them with a new opportunity, an opportunity to speak to a different audience. But all, equally, you know, they understand the way that we work. They understand the people. and you know, our objectives and our values. And it means that they can tap into that new audience without necessarily having to, you know, make an alliance with a new partner or a different team. They can work with somebody who they're really familiar with, but ultimately still have that opportunity to, to reach different audiences. So you mentioned partner objectives, and that's obviously always ever-changing, right? The last season was obviously very difficult. Talk about what that was like as you guys tried to pivot and how you guys improved or kind of tried, tried to make the best of the situation moving forward and what you guys did to adapt. Yeah, I mean, look, last year is still ongoing, isn't it, I suppose? Um, there, there was a time when you know, nobody was sure if we'd get a Formula One season underway. Um, and there were a lot of you know, really, really tough conversations to be had. Um, even with those partners who we had you know, good and, and historic relationships with. How how we managed that was was tricky. Uh, you know, there there were a number of challenging discussions to be had, and and ultimately we needed to understand. Okay, if we can't provide you value in in X area, how can we provide you value in a Y area? You know, for a lot of brands that involved upweighting branding. You know, we're, we're lucky in the sense that, you know, global property, millions of eyeballs across the world, you know, massive amounts of media exposure enabled us to make sure that we could, you know, provide potentially some of those physical experiential rights um, that we weren't able to provide actually on the ground due to the ongoing pandemic in in another way versus um, a to branding. Um, but more importantly than that, we actually wanted to make sure that, you know, we didn't just shift back to this model of, Branding is all that partners are after because we've learned over a number of years that yes, media exposure is an important component of a partnership, but it's not the sole component. And you know, to just turn around to partners and say, "Oh well, we've given you X million pounds worth of media value in replacement of Y asset," that's that's going to you know, undermine our, our way of wanting to work with our partners. So there are a number of different initiatives that we we put together. You know, obviously with regards to improving different content streams. You know, additional rights and communication rights, particularly versus our digital and, and EDM rights. Um, probably the most 
innovative platform that we looked to bring to market was something we call the Paris Slipstream, um, which was basically an exclusive and bespoke pre um, and post race broadcast show, only accessible to our partners. And this was obviously in lieu of being able to actually visit a track um, and watch a race in person. But it gave our partners access to the team in the way actually probably above and beyond what they would have had in person anyway. A real insight in terms of people, um, what happened inside the garage, live Q and A's with the drivers and personnel, and um, you know a real opportunity to showcase what McLaren was all about, and ultimately still provide a level of service and enjoyment that they unfortunately weren't able to experience in person. Um, and the most exciting thing I think about Slipstream was working with our partners with regards to being a completely new asset to understand how they could best leverage it. You know, initially it was just a case of, oh, well, we'll just invite our you know, 20 most important people to watch it. But was that actually the most beneficial way of leveraging the platform? Were there ways that you could engage customers or consumers, for example, in the platform and provide this experience that would help you develop you know, new and better relationships? And that, for me, was the most enjoyable thing. You know, the team did a great job creating this platform, but how can we work with our partners to make sure that they, they truly see the value of it? Um, and actually, as a result, yes, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. We're hoping we're going to have a 23-race calendar this year. Um, we're going to have Paddock Club available at races. People will be able to go back to track. It's an exciting time for us. But Slipstream is still a product that we're offering. There's still a demand from our partners for that service. So, yes, of course, the pandemic caused a whole lot of um, headache, but it drove innovation. Um, <laughs> innovation to an extent that actually it's allowed us to now increase our, our range of assets available to provide to partners. That's great, right? And obviously the, the strength of Formula One traditionally has been the hospitality element of it, right? You know, to be able to, to switch like that to a more digital component and then potentially increase the reach for your partners, I'm sure, has been extremely helpful, knowing that they're not just all able to go to the specific track in the specific part of the world, that you can reach people from different ways. Now, one of the things that you guys did a little bit differently than in the past was the McLaren car launch, where you introduced your new drivers and your new car and had them inside there, but also had a virtual kind of fan wall element to it. Talk about how that was another pivot from what you guys traditionally done and how that made an impact for your partners. Yeah, you're right. You know, the team launch was certainly something different to what we've done in the past. It was a, a huge success um, you know, in terms of improving the number of people who were aware of it. Um, I think traditionally, you know, car launch is seen as this opportunity to unveil a whole new livery. You know, what's the, what's the design of the car going to look different? Well, you know, for people who are into Formula One, they'll understand that actually there were very, very minor regulator, I'd say minor, they've actually had a significant impact on performance. But from a visibility perspective, very minor changes in, um, in the car development year on year. And the main reasoning for that is obviously to do with coronavirus and we need to make sure that we didn't encourage, I suppose, frivolous spending. Obviously, we need to be aware this was directed from all of the teams in Formula One. How do we make sure that we maintain reasonable level of spending given that everybody's revenues have been hit year on year. Um, so we need to make sure that we did something a, a little bit different. And you know in, in Lando and, and Daniel, our two drivers, we see a really you know unique 
kind of from a driver perspective. Um, Formula One is obviously very traditionally being seen as this sort of clinical and very sort of serious environment. And don't get me wrong, Daniel and Lando, when they step in the car, like these guys are, are very focused. I've said earlier that Formula One is an incredibly demanding sport. But what's really exciting for them is they have character. They have character outside of the sport that makes them a really attractive, um, I suppose, asset from our from our partnership. Um, and actually, you know, these guys are the face of the team as much as the car is. Um, and they provide a, a different way to bring the team to our audience. And, and actually, more importantly than that, they actually provide us with an opportunity to expand our audience. You know, Formula One is traditionally seen as a white middle class male sport. Um, what Lando and Daniel bring, um, as well as a number of the changes actually being interjected by Formula One and, and obviously the likes of Lewis Hamilton and a number of other drivers as well, they provide this opportunity for us to attract younger and a different audience into the sport. Um, just like Drive to Survive has done, it's a really important component for us as a team and Formula One's sport to make sure that we're bringing the next generation of fans through. How do we do that? How do we support that? Um, and the team launch was an opportunity to you know, show our team's character, our personality, to, to an audience that's probably less clinical um, and less expected than what you would normally see from a Formula One team. Um, and that from a partner perspective, you know, a huge amount of opportunity, predominantly because we managed to increase the, the reach and number of impressions um, and, and the view time on a lot of the content. Um, and we obviously find ways or try to find ways that we can build our plans into that. There were a few complications due to a number of um, technological developments. We weren't able to show the full extent of the park uh, during the team launch. Didn't want to give our rivals an opportunity to potentially copy some of those parts, um, which did come with its own challenges because it meant that some of, for example, the, the branding placements weren't as visible as you might normally expect to see, just because they happened to be in a, in a particular location which we didn't want to give away. Um, but it was a really exciting journey for us. And actually the, the start of, I suppose, a more considered approach to you know, our big marketing initiatives as a team moving forward. There were going to be our big temple moments, given, in, you know, given the fact that we already have 23 races in a year. We're probably not going to be able to do something big on every single race. But what are going to be our key races? What are going to be our key activities? And I can't give away too much detail at the moment, but there are a lot of really exciting, big marketing ideas coming out from Crown Racing as a team over the course of this year and next year, which most importantly are going to be opportunities that have provided opportunities and will provide opportunities for our partners to get involved with and actually drive real fan engagement opportunities, really enable them have an opportunity to speak to our audience in a way that they want to be spoken to. Extremely exciting to hear kind of the things that you guys have on the horizon. And, you know, as you look at, you know, what this docuseries did for F1 and, and the visibility and looking to, you know, expand the sport and the fandom, you talked about that fan growth and, and tapping into new audiences, you know, especially here in the U.S., how do you guys kind of look at it from a strategic standpoint to, to continue to grow the sport here um, in the U.S. with obviously a lot of different major league sports that have history here, but knowing that, 
you know, you guys also have a, a deep legacy and history with your team as well in the sport. Uh, how do you guys kind of look at, at approaching this market? The U.S. is, is a unique market. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a rich opportunity for, for any team. Um, I think what's important to understand is that, you know, it's not the case of just being an American. We're not an American team, but there are American teams in the grid. That's, that is not going to unlock um, you know, automatic support from an American audience. Um, unlike other countries, you know, whereby if you put, you know, for example, an Indian driver or you know, Australian driver into the car, you automatically unlock that audience, that audience's support, that country's support. Americans are, are different, at least in our understanding. What they really want to see is, I feel like you can probably tell me if I'm wrong here, <laughs> but at least in terms of what we've seen, um, you know, they want to be entertained. We've learned from American sports that like, it's all about the entertainment factor. Of course, the sport plays a major part in what's going on, but how do we entertain them outside of that? Um, and that's you know, why our, our major campaign, you know, things like the team launch, yes, you know, highly relevant for us as a, as a team in the UK, highly relevant for Australia, it's probably less so for our American audience and their NFL fans. But what opportunities do we have to recruit fans in the, in the States you know, through some of our big marketing activities? And, you know, US Grand Prix is obviously a major temple moment for Formula One in the region um, when it's in Austin. So there will certainly be some really exciting things going on there. Um, the other way that we're looking to support our growth um, in the States is to make sure that we're, you know, we'll look to align with, with partners who have a major presence there. Um, you know, I've always seen partnerships as an opportunity, obviously, to support our interests as a rights holder perspective and, and take partners on that journey, you know, give them an opportunity to access our audience, but how can we work with them to tap into their audiences, to their countries? Um, and we've got a roster of partners, you know, with massive global presence, and some of the ones that I used to look after or have looked after, like right, Coca-Cola, some of our Unilever consumer brands, you know, major brands in the US, in the US that we can certainly look to work with to you know, unlock access to audiences in that country and, and grow our own audience profile, which ultimately will support both parties' agenda um, as the partnership moves on. I'm so just like loving this from, like I said, an educational perspective on on everything you guys are doing. I just now I have to go watching the documentaries and like follow everybody now. Yeah, I mean, it's, I suppose the one thing to say is that the way that we're doing it isn't the same way that everybody's doing it. That's what helps helps us. Maybe I'm biased. It helps us stand out on the grid. Um, You know, we want to make sure that we're building a a commercial program for for ourselves and for our partners that differentiates us from the competition. Um, You know, we're all trying to do the same thing on track, and of course, you know, results on the track are really important. Uh, And I'm very pleased to say that you know our our trajectory is incredibly positive. of years back, things weren't quite so bright, and then Zach came in and he changed the way that we think and the way that we operate, and, and that trajectory has only been upwards. Um, you know, we we are acutely aware that currently there are two teams on the grid who are, um, you know, who have got a bit of a performance advantage, but importantly, we've closed the gap on them year on year. 
you go from the back end of last year to this year, you're going to close the gap. And then there are going to be some very significant regulation changes between 2021 and 2022. That theory will never be on. They're going to implement a load of schemes, things like, I'd call it similar to the draft, for example. So wind tunnels, massive for, for aero development. And the team that finished top next year will get less time in the wind tunnel than the team that finished bottom. So in, a, in the same way that you might have got draft by the number of sports and the team that finishes last get the first pick, this is a way of us trying to make sure that the competition is there and that Formula One remains a, a really interesting and exciting sport for fans because, I, mean, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just talking for myself, but personally I don't like to see the same team winning every week. I want to make sure that there's been a variety and everybody feels that there's an opportunity for them to, um, to do it. Yeah, and I think something coming off of that, and again, continues to go into this educational piece for me, but just, you know, you talk about obviously not totally always relying on on the performance on the track. And and what do you, when you guys are looking at, because I think that's super important. I think, you know, it's important for a brand not to rely solely just on performance. I think, you know, you have to look at how you can create um, solutions and opportunities and great experiences for partners off the field, the track or, or whatnot. How do you guys really try to differentiate yourself from an experience perspective for partners, for fans off the track that really kind of sets you guys apart maybe from others in, in the sport itself or just across sports in general? There are other teams that are um, doing similar things to us. Or certainly have started doing similar things to us. Um, for me, and certainly for the part of the reason I wanted to join McLaren in the first place, um, was with regards to the way that we portray ourselves. Um, yes, Formula One is a risky sport. Most motorsport is. Um, and of course, you know, it's a performance-related sport, and we need to make sure that when it matters, you know, everybody's got their heads switched on. It's serious. But we also need to make sure that people understand What's our identity? What's our character? What are our values? Um, and those things, you know, come to life in the way that we portray ourselves across the channels that we have access to. Um, and equally, you know, we try to bring those values to life in the content that we make with our partners to make sure that, you know, we appear or, you know, we see more people understand that we are working together towards the same objective. Um, so for me, really, it's very much a case of making sure that the way that we portray ourselves externally, um, you know, it it is different to the way that the rest of the grid tends to act, um, and it provides this opportunity for people and fans on the outside to understand how we, as McLaren, work, who we are, what we like, what we do, almost in exactly the same way that Netflix has tried to survive has provided that kind of access into. And showcases the people, um, not necessarily just documents the action on track. All right, and so we wrap up the show here with our final question. Will usually asks this question, so I'm going to try my best to to do it in, in in his honor here. James, if you're able to kind of provide us with either a piece of advice that's helped you along your career, or a book that you've recently read and really enjoyed, there, what would you choose? I'll go for the advice to start with. Um, and the main reason why this one always, why it was recently sprung to mind, or it's something I always think about, but it's, it's really pertinent to the moment, is that my house is actually about to go under a bit of a massive renovation. And this is actually an adage that's 
more um, uh, or usually found in the construction world. It's measure twice, cut once. Um, and look, from a construction perspective, it makes perfect sense. Make sure you measure twice, check, um, and then cut. And you only have to make that cut once. But actually, I think it's equally important in our world. You know, take that data, analyze and understand it, check it again, and then execute. Because if you don't measure twice and you just work on guts, or you don't check your facts first and then just execute, you'll find yourself wasting money, wasting time, not delivering as you would expect. Um, so that for me is something that I find really sort of underpins the way that I work, certainly, um, and also underpins the way that we as a, as a team of power trying to work. We're making sure that everything that we're doing is, yes, you know, born a little bit from gut, and gut is experience and knowledge, um, but making sure that that is, that is checked and understood and then executed. And that means that we can do it once and do it right. From a, from a book perspective, and um, this is probably a little bit, a little bit different because it probably doesn't quite support the role that we play from a partnerships perspective. Um, but it's called How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp. And it basically talks about, well, the importance of fast-moving consumer goods and how you need to make sure you're not neglecting your mass audience. A lot of marketing campaigns nowadays that are really, really targeted. You know, what's my target audience? How do I get them to buy more product? But actually, brands neglect to understand that probably a significant portion of their revenue streams on an annual basis come from consumers who buy their product actually just once a year. Um, so particularly if you're working in, in the world of FMCG, which is when I first read this book when I was working at CSM, you know, there's this sort of, I suppose, theory that you need to try and get your existing customers to purchase more frequently. Um, and actually what you just need to make sure you do is get your customers who rarely purchase to make sure they purchase just once a year. And that will actually support it's a really, really interesting read, and I mainly read it to make sure that I, I suppose, had a more well-rounded understanding of how the industry worked and didn't necessarily just read books. That supported my, um, my hypotheses with regards to how we should be marketed um, and how engaging targeted audiences was an important way to grow. Um, but it taught me a lot, and it's certainly you know, a book that I take into a lot of my thinking from a from a brand marketing perspective, whether I'm working agency side previously or even now working with White Sox. He is the head of principal partners at McLaren Racing. James Bunbury, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure.